Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, November 6th, and we've got a bank news trifecta for you today. And none of them have anything to do with bank earnings. There are actually lots of interesting, broad things happening across the financial sector right now. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, thanks for coming back. Yeah, it's always good to be here. Fantastic. So, folks, before we get into these three really interesting pieces of news, you're going to hear us talking a lot about cycles today. Cycles of regulation and deregulation, cycles of easy credit and tough credit, and interest rate cycles. To really get a full understanding of where we are today, you need a historical perspective that can really explain sort of where we are and why we're here. A couple of years ago, John Maxfield, one of our premier banking writers, made a chart covering the history of American banking since the Civil War. It's the sort of thing that, at least for me, took two minutes to read and brought my understanding forward by at least several months. So I think it's a really cool piece of content. I'd love to share it with you. If you'd like a copy, just drop us a note at industryfocus@fool.com. And again, that's industryfocus@fool.com. With that, let's turn to our first piece of news. It looks like we have a new Fed chair. We do. Uh, Donald Trump ticked Jerome Powell just as expected, and um, he will take office, I believe, in February. What's interesting about this is, so Donald Trump was looking at a lot of different potential Fed nominees. Right, you had Kevin Warsh, you had Janet Yellen herself, you had a number of different possibilities, and Jerome Powell is really kind of a state of the course candidate. I mean, he there isn't a lot of daylight between him and and Yellen in terms of their viewpoints on sort of how to stimulate the uh, how to do Fed policy and sort of how things work from here. Right, this was kind of the least controversial take. Trump could have made while still kind of making the Fed his own. Um, the, Powell's unlikely to really kind of deviate from Janet Yellen's trajectory at all. Um, he's he's actually always voted for the, with the majority since he's been on the Fed board of directors. Um, so he's kind of, you know, the path of least resistance to what's going on right now. Um, the, there's a small difference between him and Yellen in that he's kind of a little more in favor of looser financial regulations, especially when it comes to smaller banks. So you can kind of see why Trump would you know, align with him a little bit more than Yellen. Sure. And we'll talk more about uh, bank sort of financial deregulation, or at least fighting back against financial regulation a little bit later with another of our news pieces. But this is certainly one of those kind of broad cycles that you tend to see in finance, where Something will happen. There will be a panic or a crisis or something a la, hopefully not as bad as, of course, the 2008-2009 financial meltdown. But when that happens, usually the government will step in with a lot of regulations that will depress bank profitability, but also kind of help them better control risk, kind of force them to control risk a little bit. And then over time, that'll kind of get sort of taken down and there will become a, kind of a, a deregulatory cycle. Um, and so this might, emphasis on might, be one of the signs that begins to signal some of that movement toward looser regulations for banks. Right. It's a, you, at first, you kind of see a, a knee-jerk reaction to a crisis or you know kind of tough economic environment, and then over time, you'll see them kind of realize that they might have gone a little too far. That there might, some of the regulations might be doing a little more harm than good. Like costing a little more than they're worth, they're excluding certain people from credit who are 
pretty much who should be able to get credit. And so that's kind of the argument in favor of winding down some of these regulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but for me, the and I think really for anyone watching this story, the really key thing here is that Donald Trump had a chance to make a big change, and he chose not to. And that's a good that's good news for people who think that the economy is generally heading in the right direction, uh, and certainly the stock market reacted positively. So at least in the very short term, that's good news for investors too. Any other thoughts on that, Matt? Um, no, actually, this is. If, if, I think if he had chosen any of the other nominations, we would have had a lot more to, <laughs> to talk about. Yes, that is extraordinarily true. All right, so let's turn to news piece number two. Rising interest rates. And we're not talking about U.S. interest rates this time. For the first time in a decade, the Bank of England raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point with plans for two more hikes by 2020. Right. It's, um, interest rate hikes are generally a sign that the government's confident in its economy. Um, the U.K. is kind of a special case because the economy, it's kind of a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Um Generally, the two main reasons that rates are increased in the first place are either because inflation is getting a little too high or unemployment's lower than kind of the target range. Both of those are true in England right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, inflation's at about 3% and expected to actually go up a little bit with the next reading, and unemployment's as low as it's been in a few decades. But the, the flip side of that is economic growth is slower than it's been in you know, five or six years since pretty much right after the financial crisis. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, this this increase was widely expected. It was a very small increase. Um, England's target rate right now is, or benchmark interest rate rather, is still, is 50 basis points, 0.5%. And this actually, it's, it's worth pointing out, this is kind of just undoing what was the kind of emergency rate cut that was done right after Brexit last year. So kind of don't read into this too, too much in terms of how well England's economy is doing. Yeah. One of the key things that I think is also good context for this is that the Bank of England, part of their mandate is to target a consumer price index, or CPI, growth of about 2%. As you noted, it hit 3% in September. So it makes sense that they were going to try to tamp that down a little bit. And it's, I think, good news for people who don't like radical change, sort of like Jerome Powell is good news for people who don't want radical change with U.S. Fed policy. Uh, it's good news for people who don't want radical change that the Bank of England raised things by 0.25 percentage points. It wasn't a huge change. It's really just trying to tamp things down just a little bit to kind of nudge that growth in inflation down to get them closer to their benchmark. Right. And um, like you said, they're only expecting two more rate hikes within the next three years, which is you know, probably about a third of the pace that we're expected to raise interest rates. Right. So that's kind of, it's. I would take that more as a sign of uncertainty in the economy than anything else. Hmm. That's like, the numbers themselves look pretty good right now, but like Brexit's still kind of, you know, in the background, and growth is a little bit slower than where it should be, given such high inflation and good unemployment. So it's more of a sign of caution than anything else. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty for our friends across the pond right now. So let's take a step back. Yes and talk about, in general, a rising interest rate environment and what that means. Because, let's face it, U.S. interest rates are definitely increasing, and they'll actually be increasing, as you noted, probably a good bit faster than the U.K.'s. 
Um, I think the first group we should talk about talk about are consumers. So, if you are a consumer, interest, a rising interest rate environment primarily affects you because when you borrow money, <laughs> you're going to be paying more interest. And on the flip side, you're going to get a little bit more interest when you open a savings account or a, a CD. So, when you deposit money in the bank, maybe instead of I'm making this up here, but instead of 0.01%, you might be getting 0.5% or even one day 1% or even 2%. I mean, that's not historically unreasonable to see at some point in the relatively distant future. So that should help some of those yields for consumers. Definitely. Um, it's it's also kind of worth pointing out that some things are directly related to rising you know, benchmark interest rates, while some aren't. You mentioned savings accounts. So far, savings accounts really haven't, you know, risen proportionally to Not the at interest all. rate. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but some things are, however, like credit cards will rise immediately after the rates are are increased. Um, any any type of loan that's tied to a benchmark, like an adjustable rate mortgage, for example, would rise immediately. Whereas things like more, like um, you know, non-adjustable mortgage rates, um, savings CD rates. They kind of tend to, they tend to move with Fed rate hikes, but it's not a perfect correlation. Right. No, I think that's a that's a great point to to make there. So the other thing to consider is, in, or one of the other groups, of course, that's set to be affected by interest rate hikes are banks themselves, and banks make their money by taking in taking in money, usually through um, checking accounts, savings accounts, money markets, things like that, and then loaning it out at a higher rate. So as rates go up, they can theoretically put that money out at an even higher rate, and that will juice their returns. So banks in general should benefit substantially from interest rate increases. It's especially true when rates rise faster than rates on deposits are rising, like we just right. mentioned with the savings accounts. Um, generally, the effect is when rates rise, borrowing rates tend to rise a little more faster than deposit rates, mm-hmm. which can, which is what's called margin expansion for banks. So banks tend to make a higher percentage as, <clears throat> as they're loaning money out for a higher rate and not paying quite as much more on deposits. So that's why you're in the past quarter, you've seen pretty much every bank other than Wells Fargo make higher higher interest more interest margins by about about ten to twelve basis points, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see this as interest rates continue to rise, a little bit more margin expansion, which is very good for banks. Absolutely. Then for investors, one of the interesting things about rising interest rates is that it'll drive down. Usually, it'll drive down bond prices, which will then improve bond yields, right? So, if you have, you know, making this up, a $10 bond that yields $1 per year, that would be a 10% yield. Uh, that would be insane, by the way, much higher than we get right now. But if the price of that bond drops to $5 and suddenly that $1 yield becomes a 20% yield, right? Even though it hasn't changed any, it's just that with the price lower, that yield is then better. What's interesting about this to me is that if bond yields improve substantially, so right now you know you see a lot of bonds kind of paying like three and four percent. That starts getting up into like you know five, six, maybe even seven percent. I think a lot of 
your income investors. So these are folks who are at or near retirement who have been in dividend stocks because they're paying a similar yield to these bonds and you get some potential capital appreciation out of it, might head over to bonds instead of income stocks, which could have some really interesting effects on the dividend stock market, and most of them, let's say, not terribly positive uh, for those who are already invested there. Of course, we can't predict the future, but that's just one possible outcome here. Right. Um, a good example I always use, um, I invest a lot in real estate stocks, REITs, um, which pay you know generally 4 to 6%. Yeah, they do pretty well. Um, the ex- right. They're some of the highest dividend stocks in the market. And one of the examples I always use is, say, if a 10-year treasury is paying 3% and a pretty solid REIT is paying 5%, it's worth taking the extra risk to get that extra yield. However, if the treasury is now paying 6%, but you can only get 5% from a riskier asset, it kind of you lose the incentive to take that extra risk, and then that can create selling pressure on the stock to kind of jump the yield up, as you were just describing. Of course, on the flip side, when great businesses go on sale, that is a great time to potentially buy in. And we've talked a fair amount about dividend stocks and about dividend aristocrats and some of these other companies that have really shown their ability to raise their dividends and really reward investors long term. So this might create some really great buying opportunities. I know me personally, I'm looking forward to and hoping for that outcome so that I can pick up some great companies on on sale. Me too. It, it'll, it can be painful in the short term to watch the, the dollar value of your portfolio go down, but in the long term, it's actually a really good thing for people who still have time. Right. So long as it doesn't go down for forever, right? <laughs> right. Short term, it's okay. Right. Right. Yes. And we always have a long term mindset here. So that's, anyway, one of the possible outcomes of this. So let's turn to our third story. So in late October, the the United States Senate voted to overturn a rule that had been made by the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, or CFPB, to make filing class action lawsuits a lot easier for consumers. So, again, thinking of this sort of from a deregulatory cycle standpoint, this is a pushback against a bank regulation. Right. It's worth mentioning already that this rule hasn't gotten into effect yet, so nothing's changing. Right. Right. So this is, it, the rule would have made it difficult for banks to prevent banks, credit card companies, other financials to prevent class action lawsuits if they did something wrong. Um, good example would be the Wells Fargo, the fake account scandal. Um, when customers opened accounts at Wells Fargo, they signed these what are called arbitration clauses that prevent them from joining in with other investors to sue the bank and instead requiring them to solve their disputes through arbitration. Um, now that this rule's been thrown out, that's pretty much the only option. Now, the Supreme Court ruled that these clauses are, these uh, arbitration clauses are legal, but the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau was trying to, you know, amend that in, in, in the cases of, you know, um, banks, credit card companies, and, and the such. Sure. And, and there are some interesting effects, knock-on effects of this sort of thing, um, with things like the Equifax data breach, for example. Right. Um, when Equifax, the data breach came out, they offered consumers a year of credit protection, but there was a clause in in the sign-up form that said that 
you know, consumers were not allowed to join class action lawsuits against Equifax if they accepted the help. Um, they later wound up taking it down after there was a big backlash about it. But this is the type of thing that it's not uncommon. These are just two high-profile incidents that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, most people listening to this probably signed something saying they wouldn't join a class action lawsuit when they open their own checking account. So th- this isn't this isn't new. It was just a new protection that was going to go into effect. Right. Yeah. And again, it's it's interesting because it's not clear that we've begun any real deregulation. Certainly, there's been a lot of talk about it, right? And again, the appointment of of Jerome Powell, this turn back on the CFPB could be the very, very beginnings of a, a pushback against what might be perceived to be some overreach. But it's hard to tell exactly whether that cycle is beginning or whether we're still going to kind of stay where we are on regulation for a while. And this is one that I was talking about, how you can make the case toward removing certain regulations. Mm-hmm. There is a good case to be made that a lot of frivolous class action lawsuits are filed against these companies. Um, I know just kind of a, a somewhat related example. I invested in a stock years ago and it wound up going down by, you know, 40% because I was wrong about the company. And I got, you know, 10 emails asking if I wanted to join a class action lawsuit against the company, even though they really hadn't done anything wrong. So the argument against it is that this is just kind of the only person people who are benefiting from this are these trial lawyers who are suing. And there is some evidence that says through arbitration, consumers actually generally get better settlements than through class action lawsuits. So if there's there's an argument to be made either way. I'm not saying whether it's a, it would be a good rule or a bad rule. Just there is an argument to be made that some regulations might be overstepping a little bit. Yeah, totally. And that is definitely part of this whole conversation. And it's hard to predict right, whether one of these regulations would or wouldn't have been the right answer. Because, frankly, there's lots of real-world data and lots of, as you pointed out, a fair argument to be made either way. Um, so, for me, I'm more interested in sort of seeing this within the broad landscape of banking. And again, I'll just do one more plug for this. I, I do think this conversation is a lot more enriched. If you have a better understanding of where we stand historically, in terms of thinking about sort of how the banking system has really developed over the last 150 years and what some of those different cycles have looked like. So again, if you want that chart that John Maxfield made, just drop us a note, industryfocus at fool.com, and we'll be happy to provide that. Well, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com, and we love to hear from listeners. As always, people in the program may have interests in the stock they, stocks they talk about. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.